Well, I want to ask you this morning, uh, what do the following statements from Christian leaders that I want to put on the board, what are they referring to? This one by William Perkins, it may justly be called the key of the whole Bible. And then Augustine, who said it is a perfect standard of the Christian life. And then it is the basis for the Christian classic, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then Pastor Kent Hughes, whose writings have had such a great ministry in my own life, said it is the most important factor in my spiritual life. Do you know what these great Christian leaders are all referring to? They're all talking about the Sermon on the Mount. That's what they're referring to. Uh, For uh, some time now, uh, really about over a year, I have felt a great desire to study and preach uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And after reading these statements by these very godly men, it only confirms the desire that, that God has placed on my heart. And so as we begin a new year together, I want to start a new series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this morning, as you look at this scene at the north side of the Sea of Galilee, this is called the Mount of the Beatitudes, and it is the traditional place on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, where the Lord Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And it is significant for a number of reasons. I want you to take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to begin by reading verses 1 and 2 as we open up the words of our Lord here in the Gospel of Matthew. And listen to what the Scripture says to us in Matthew 5 verses 1 and 2. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is significant for a number of very important reasons. One, its place makes it significant. The Bible says here in verse 2 that, that his disciples came to him. This is the first sermon recorded in Jesus' ministry. It is the very first address that he gave to his followers. First words are often very significant words, aren't they? Because they are foundational to everything else that would come. And so the Sermon on the Mount being Jesus' first address to his disciples is significant because it is foundational to everything else that he would teach. This sermon's length also makes it significant. This is the longest sermon ever recorded by Jesus. Three chapters, and you put all the verses together, and it is the longest message we have from him in the Gospels. Now that Matthew would give so much time, so early in the Gospel record to this sermon, makes it very, very significant. But then I want you to notice the major reason why it is significant is because of Jesus' action. Look at verse 1 again. It says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside 
and he sat down. Now when we read that, uh, one of the things that ought to uh, trigger in our minds is the activity of Moses when he went up on the mountainside. You remember how Moses went up on the mountain and, and he received the Ten Commandments. And then he turned back and, and he came down and delivered those Ten Commandments to the people of God. Near the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, he said these words, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, you must listen to him. And now Jesus climbs a mountain just like Moses did. And in fulfillment of the prophecy of Moses, he delivers his first great sermon. And here we are now, 3,500 years later from the words of Moses, and they ring in our ears, you must listen to him, you must listen to him, you must listen to him. This morning as we begin this great study, I want to simply ask a very simple question. Why listen to the Sermon on the Mount? Why listen to the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, I want to give a number of reasons why we ought to, as, as we begin to look together at what Jesus has for us. Uh, to begin with, I think that we ought to listen to the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount shows us, perhaps more than any other portion of God's Word, why we must be born again. Now the very first thing that any reader of the Sermon on the Mount notices is how high a standard Jesus gives to us. If you look with me over at verse 20 in chapter 5, you will notice that this is the theme verse of the whole sermon. Uh, every good sermon has a theme, and this sermon has a theme as well, and everything in this sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7, flows out of chapter 5, verse 20. And notice what Jesus says. Here's his theme. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus talks here about the righteousness of the Pharisees. And I think we know that the righteousness of the Pharisees was an outward righteousness. It was all about external rules and regulations. They were the legalists of the day. And you know why legalism is so attractive to so many people? It's because it's so easy. What a legalist does is sets up external rules that he can do and then says, this is the standard. And that's why legalism is so attractiveness, so attractive. But what Jesus will teach us in the Sermon on the Mount is that true righteousness is inner righteousness. It is a righteousness of the heart. It goes to the very core of our being and is far deeper than any kind of outward conformity. 
Now, all we have to do is, is to begin to look at the opening Beatitudes, and we begin to see that. Uh, look with me, starting at verse 3 at the Beatitudes, and notice that by nature, we are the opposite of these qualities. Verse 3, uh, instead of being poor in spirit, we are self-righteous. Instead of mourning over sin, verse 4, we treat sin lightly. Instead of being meek, verse 5, we are by nature self-assertive. Instead of hungering for righteousness and thirsting for it, what do we hunger for? We hunger for wealth and, and power and pleasure. Instead of being merciful, we are vengeful by nature. Instead of being pure, as, as we heard in the prayer this morning, we are sinful by nature. And instead of being persecuted for our faith, as he says in verse 10, we conform to the world so that we can avoid persecution. And as we look at the Beatitudes, we have to say, by nature, we are not what Jesus is asking for. I love what A.W. Tozer had to say about the Beatitudes. Listen to his words, and you will say to yourself, he is exactly right. He said, a fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished, one unacquainted with it, by taking the Beatitudes turning them wrong side out and saying, here is your human race. And I want to say, bingo. Exactly. Tozer is right on. And I've had to say in my life, guilty. Guilty. How about you? How about you? That's why the very first thing that ought to strike us as we read this sermon of the Lord is how much we need mercy and grace. I love what one pastor has said, anyone who says they live by the Sermon on the Mount is either lying or has never read it. And the first thing we cry for when we see this standard of the Lord is I need mercy, I need grace. In fact, look how Jesus concludes chapter 5. Look at verse 48. And notice how high He says the standard is. Look at it in verse 48. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, all of us know a holy God created us originally to be holy ourselves. Therefore, a holy God has the right to call us to His high, holy standard. But I look at that, and I say I'm undone. I'm lost. No way. I want to just say, help! Help! This is why, as we, as we look at this sermon, the Lord Jesus said, the very first thing we need if we are to enter His kingdom and live in His kingdom is we need a, a new life. 
Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. He said, whoever would enter into the kingdom must first be born again. And to be born again means to be forgiven. It means to have our hearts changed by the powerful work of the Lord in our life. It means to be delivered and liberated from Satan and set free. And then once we get that new life from Jesus who died and rose again so that we could have that new life, then and only then can we begin to live out this great Sermon on the Mount. And all God's people said this morning, Amen. By the way, a curious thing begins to happen once we are born again. What we discover is the very sermon that condemned us now motivates us. Why did Kent Hughes, the pastor whose writings have influenced me so much, say, the Sermon on the Mount is the most important factor in his spiritual life? Why did he say that? Because the sermon so condemned him so greatly that he cried out for mercy and grace to God. And then having been born again, he was so thankful that he had received new life that he said, Oh Lord, now I want to live this sermon for you. And an amazing thing happens when you're born again. The very sermon that caused you to cry out for grace and mercy now motivates you to live for Jesus. What a wonderful thing this is. Let's look at a second answer to this question. Second answer as to why we ought to listen to the Sermon on the Mountain is the Sermon on the Mount shows what it means to live for Jesus. It's so important for us to get this this morning. If I were to ask you, what is the purpose of salvation? Uh, somebody might respond, well, pastor, that's easy. The purpose of salvation is so that we can go to heaven. But that answer would be wrong. Heaven is the final stage of salvation. It is not the purpose of salvation. And you say to me, Pastor, what is the purpose of salvation? Well, I want you to consider Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And then we say, what is that purpose? Well, it's found in Romans 8.29, whom He foreknew, He also predestined, that they might be conformed to the image of His Son, so that His Son might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now follow this. The purpose of salvation is so that God will restore His image in fallen, sinful human beings through salvation. And that restoration to the image of God comes through the Lord Jesus. He did two things for that to happen. Number one, He died and rose so that we could be born into the image of God. And then He lived His life as an example so we could see a model to follow. Now I want to ask you a question here this morning. 
Where is the greatest presentation of how Jesus lived? Where is that found in the Bible? The Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I love what one pastor has said about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on the Mount. And the place where we find the greatest example of how the Lord Jesus lived is right in these three chapters. I want you to look with me for just a moment at an example of this. Look down at chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. And I want you to notice these well-known words. Listen to what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. How many times have you watched an old western? I think that's the most quoted verse in all the old westerns. Just saw it over the the, uh, break on Gunsmoke. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now let me say to you, this has been wrongly interpreted by the Amish and many Mennonites. They say that what Jesus is teaching here is pacifism. And so self-defense of any kind is wrong. May I say to you, that is entirely wrong. Entirely wrong. What Jesus is doing here is using hyperbole, which is deliberate exaggeration. He is going to the extreme. What Jesus means is we are not to enact vengeance. We are not to retaliate against others to try to get even. Now, doesn't your blood this morning just boil at the thought of somebody reaching up and slapping you? Doesn't your blood just boil when you think of that? You want to retaliate and hit them twice as hard. What do we often say? Don't get mad. You know that too, don't you? Took the words right out of my mouth. Jim Ferris, that's not Christianity. We didn't plan this. Self-defense, yes. Getting even, never. Never, in any way, shape, or form. Now I want you to listen to what Peter witnessed the Lord Jesus do when he was with him. Listen to these words. I won't ask you to turn to them in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says this. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. What do you see? You see that Jesus lived the Sermon on the Mount. He practiced what he preached. And when we are reading the Sermon on the Mount, we are seeing Jesus modeling before us what it means to live in the image of God. And did you know that's how the spiritual life grows? One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians 3.16. This is what it says. We all with unveiled face because we've been born again. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Are transformed into His likeness. From one level of glory to the next. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Who is the Lord? What the Bible is saying to us is this. As we behold the the beauty of the Lord Jesus in His Word, the Holy Spirit who lives in every person who is born again transforms that person from one level of glory and growth to the next because He lives within us and He is transforming us from the inside out. And so what the Bible is saying to us is if you want to grow in the spiritual life, you contemplate your Lord and the greatest place to see where He lived is here in the Sermon on the Mount. How glorious this is for us. Let's look at a third reason. Third reason today that we ought to hear the Sermon on the Mount is because it shows us the way to God's blessing. Now, as you look at the Beatitudes, you will notice that it, the word blessed occurs nine times in the opening of this sermon. We call these the Beatitudes. And we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus start with the Beatitudes? And the simple answer is this. They deal with our character, what we are on the inside. In other words, the Beatitudes show us how to become strong in the inner person. And being a person who is spiritually strong on the inside is always the most satisfying life. Let me say that again. Being a person who is spiritually strong on the inside, is always, always the most satisfying life. So Jesus starts with the Beatitudes because they focus on our character and we experience the blessing of developing our character as we pursue the Beatitudes. I love this statement that Billy Graham made. It is so true. We all agree with it. When wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is lost. Don't you agree with that? 
Let's rank the things of priority in life. Wealth down here. Health a little higher. Character is the highest. It's the highest. And everyone knows that. And so therefore, to be a person of inner spiritual character is the most satisfying life. Now that is what Jesus is promising in the Beatitudes. Uh, listen to what Pastor Warren Wearsby says is the meaning of the word Beatitude. Listen to this. The Latin word for blessed is beatus. And from this comes the word beatitude. This was a powerful word to those who heard Jesus that day. To them it meant divine joy and perfect happiness. The word was not used for humans. It describes the kind of joy experienced only by the gods or the dead. Blessed implied an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. That is what the Lord offers those who trust Him. Let me read that again. Blessed implied an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness, that is what the Lord offers those who trust Him. I can't help but think of Jesus' words in John 10.10. 10. I have come that they might have life and they might have it to the full. Don't you long for that life? Don't you long for that life this morning? When you hear Jesus say, this is why I came. I came that they who I died for, who I will redeem, who I will give new life, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. I say, oh Lord, I long for that life. Here it is in the Beatitudes. Here it is in the Beatitudes. Now, do you know the other reason why this sermon shows us the way to God's blessing? Is the Beatitudes are the key to the whole rest of the sermon. Only when the Beatitudes are true of us can we do the rest of Jesus' sermons. In other words, the Beatitudes are first because conduct always flows from character. Therefore, we must be first a beatitude person in the inner life before we can ever do the rest of what Jesus says. Turn over to chapter 6 and notice with me verses 14 and 15 for just a moment. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. And listen to what Jesus says. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now Jesus here is not saying we earn forgiveness by giving forgiveness. It's not what he's saying. 
He's saying that by forgiving others, we show that we are a beatitude person. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. The most unforgiving people that I have ever known are self-righteous people who see themselves as above others. But when we are poor in spirit, we see ourselves as sinners just like everyone else. Or think of it like this. People who never mourn for their own sins never see their own need of forgiveness. And if you never face your own need for forgiveness, you will never forgive others in the way that you ought to. So now becomes very, very clear what's going on here. The Beatitudes are the key for us to do the rest of the sermon. We must be a Beatitude person in the inner life if we would do the things that Jesus is calling us to do. Do you see why we must be born again? Only then can we be a beatitude person. And only then can we live like Jesus and live life to the full. This is the key to blessing in life. Let me give you a final answer this morning. Finally, we ought to listen to the Sermon on the Mount because it shows how to please our Heavenly Father. I want you to turn back to verse 12 of chapter 5 and I want you to notice the first occurrence of the word reward. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 5 verse 12. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. If you spend some time counting the word reward in the next three chapters, you will discover it appears nine times. Exactly the same number of times as the word blessed occurs. Now, I was totally unprepared for that. There is a surprising emphasis in the Sermon on the Mount on rewards. Uh, look over at chapter 6, verse 1 where the word reward, I think, appears in this chapter like seven times. And notice what Jesus says in verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. There is a surprising emphasis on rewards throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Bible speaks much about rewards. It says there are crowns that we can earn. It says Jesus, when He comes again, He will give to His faithful servants places of authority to rule with Him in His kingdom. Listen to what Daniel had to say in Daniel 12, verse 3, about the rewards that Jesus will one day pass out, listen to what he said. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who lead many to righteousness. 
Sermon on the Mount type people. They will shine like the stars forever and ever. You know what this means? The more rewards we earn on earth, the more glory we will be able to give to Jesus in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches us about rewards. Now I look at this and I say, God is so good. He saves us. He keeps us saved by His grace. He will one day take us to heaven for all eternity. And then in addition to all of that, He rewards us for living like Jesus because it so pleases Him. What an incentive then for us as we come to this great sermon to give our all to the Sermon on the Mount because our Heavenly Father is pleased when we do and in addition to all of the presence of being in heaven, He will reward us that we might glorify Him to the greatest effect. What a tremendous, Tremendous offer. One of the greatest preachers ever on the Sermon on the Mount was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. They called him the doctor because he gave up a life in medicine. He was on the fast track to become personal physician to the King of England. He gave it all up to preach the gospel. And he had a wonderful ministry at Westminster Chapel in London, England. And he preached some of the greatest sermons who, that have ever been heard on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we close this morning, I want you to see what he thought of what this sermon from our Lord could do for us. Listen to his words. Here is the life to which we are called. And I maintain that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. The world would be shocked and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we consider embarking together, listening to Him, we want to pray that God will do that very work in our hearts. Let's bow together for just a moment. Perhaps you're here today and you've never been born again. I would just appeal to you now. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to give you new life. He invites you by grace to come into His family. 
And when you have trusted Him in that way, a strange transformation will come into your life. And the very things that once condemned you, you will now find to be a source of motivation to live for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And so today, I would call on you. You can trust Christ right where you are seated. You can say in your heart, Lord Jesus, I'm undone, I'm lost. I have to confess my guilt. But I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again for my salvation. And right now, Lord Jesus, I'm turning from my own way. I'm repenting. I'm asking you to come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my life and be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Give me new life. Make me a child of God. And Lord Jesus, from this day forward, I will follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. And then for those of us who are born again, our Savior is going to prick us. He is going to wound us at times. But in so doing, He will heal us. He will make us after His image. And as we study together His great words to us, would you say, Lord Jesus, I open my life before You. I want that full life that You have promised. And I will allow you to be Lord in every way as I hear you speak. Lord Jesus, I want you to change me. Blessed Lord, today, hear our prayers. Hear our prayers, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you fulfilled Moses' prophecy. You went up on the mountainside. And you are still speaking. And we are here today because we know we want to listen. Save those who need to be saved. Change all of us into the image of of your likeness. Help us to grow from one level of glory to the next. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our final song. Calls us after our Lord. And as we get to the last verse, I'll ask our pastors and elders and their wives to join you at the exits where they can greet you. Let's sing to the Lord.